You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist humanist podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleiman. Today's episode features a fantastic interview with scholar and activist Rohini Hensman. We discuss Ukrainian history and how this history helps us better understand the current war in Ukraine. We also talked to Rohini about the pseudo-anti-imperialism often found in the left. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. In just a moment, we'll be talking with Rohini Hensman about Ukraine. But first, as we do in every episode, Andrew and I are going to take a few minutes to talk about some current events. Today is Tuesday, March 22nd. And this, for this current events section, we're going to be talking about discussion within the Democratic Party about the 2024 elections. Uh, there was a piece on February 21st in the Washington Post by Dan Balls. Uh, entitled Democrats are engaged in a new politics of evasion that could cost them in 2024, a new study says. And the new study that he is referring to is a study that was put out by the Progressive Policy Institute and uh, written by Galston and Kemark, which basically puts forward an argument for the, the Democrats to uh, reorient themselves around a centrist political platform and to pursue swing voters around, I guess, catering to their cultural politics in order to uh, win in 2024, which they say is like a, a real emergency situation, the 2020, 2024 election in the U.S. Yeah, everything they say, everything else should be subordinated to making sure Trump does not get reelected in 2024. The, the way to make sure of that, in their view, is to, is to get a Democrat elected by appealing to the the swing voters. Well, one of the arguments here is right that turning out the base is not going to be enough in 2024. I mean, I think that's absolutely correct as far as it goes. People said you mobilize the Democratic base, you get millions and millions more votes. Uh, and they did that in 2020. The, the problem was millions and millions of Trumpites came from out of the woodwork. I mean, people who had never voted. So Trump uh, got uh, some astoundingly large increase in his vote from over 2016. Okay, the, now the Democrats did even better. They, they picked up uh, something like 15 million uh, additional votes. You know, partly because people were not voting uh, third party. But the idea that you can mobilize your base and do things to help mobilize your base and there's not going to be negative consequence with the, the, the far right being mobilized against you. I, mean, I think they're, they're right about that one. You know, they have this critique of the idea that there's a emerging progressive majority in American politics, which I don't even know if they define what that means. And they try to disambiguate the Democratic uh, voting base and say that there's not necessarily a progressive majority emerging. So, you know, they try to t pick apart, look, uh, Hispanic voters are not monolithic. They have been trending more Republican. Uh, Asian American voters are not monolithic. They, you know, don't always trend more progressive on certain issues. Do you think th these kind of points support their conclusions? The, the point supports the conclusions. The question is how strong the evidence is for the points. I, I don't think anybody actually ever believed that people of color was a monolithic force. Uh, what they're really getting at is when people like in the Democratic Party, adjacent to the Democratic Party, would look at electoral prospects in the future, they said, ah, oh, the country's becoming more non-white, and people of color are more progressive, vote more for Democrats, and the future is rosy. It's not so much that, that there are people of color who are different from other people of color, or even like the you talk about the Latinos or Hispanic, you're talking about very, very diverse communities, okay? People have all, were always known that, but the, the, the issue is they were kind of sanguine about the current trends going together, the, the trend that the country's becoming more non-white and the trend that non-whites tend to reject the Republicans and, and to vote the Democratic. They kind of like assumed all of that would go together, and you know what has happened is targeting of 
for instance, Cubans in, 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 in Florida or a segment of Mexican-Americans in Texas or picking off black men in particular who might vote different ways than, than black women. So ba basically they're saying is you, you can't do your politics as if you're dealing with a monolithic force that's it's in your pocket. And a lot of the people who are not in your pocket have a lot more in common with your white middle-income swing voter than they do with, you know, like other poor and oppressed non-white people. There's this trope about, look at the, the Italian-Americans, you know, they used to be downtrodden and everything, and then they became white. And the, the, the fear is that the Latinos, or at least a great share of Latinos in America, are going to go the way of the, the Italian-Americans. They're going to be accepted within the country, and then they're going to be having that kind of politics, which is oriented generally towards the Republicans. It's a valid point that none of this stuff can really be taken for granted, how these folks are going to vote. Whether there has been a, a permanent shift, that to me is, is not clear at this moment. There's really good evidence that uh, a lot of the shift away from the Democrats towards Trump and stuff in 2020 had to do with the, the, the COVID pandemic. In other words, there's no nationwide policies that guarantee people are going to have income, you know, if they don't have jobs and you're talking about poor people, people living from paycheck to paycheck, if they don't get a paycheck, they're, they're out of luck. And the Democrats, by and large, want to like try to have uh, some, some measures uh, lockdowns, whatever, and the Republicans are just like, let it rip, let everybody die. If, if you're sitting there in that kind of situation, you might well want to have protections, but if there are not protections, you don't want the economy to be locked up if you're not going to uh, have, have any income in the meantime. So in terms of immediate naked survival self-interest that can that can pull votes and I, I think it, it did pull votes in the Trumpite direction in the 2020 election none of that is clear I mean the, the, the thing that is clear is that this view that the Democrats have all these people in their pocket and they can take them for granted that is untrue it's always been untrue the communities have continually said this is not true uh, you know the activists and so forth you got to pay attention to us and that doesn't tend to happen that much well what about the need to still turn out the base if you're adopting messaging that is offensive or harmful to your base right this is why the, the Democrats are really between a rock and a hard place is because it's very hard given the slanted electoral college, not even talking about the voter suppression efforts that are succeeding across the country and the, the election nullification efforts. It, but g given the, the lopsided math and the existence of the electoral college, the lop lopsided Senate uh, distribution, it's very hard for them to, to win elections even with a majority. So they, they, they face this trade-off between going for swing voters in the middle versus getting more uh, votes by energizing the base. By and large, yeah, if you do things that energize the base, it turns off a, a section of, of the swing voters uh, and vice versa. So I, I think that basically people like this and people who study the data even somewhat more like David Shore are basically saying, yeah, even though they're not a lot of swing voters, they're still really crucial for winning elections and there's still enough of them that we're going to gain more votes in the right places by going in the direction of these swing voters, even at the expense of turning off base. And the thing that is, is kind of said, the way we keep the base is, is we scare them with not falsehoods, but the truth that, you know, you might not like it, none of us might like it, but look, this is what we're, we're telling this to ourselves. This is what we got to do to prevent Trump from becoming president again. So it, it, it's not that people are going to like vote to reward the Democrats or because they got any hope that the Democrats going to make anything better. They're going to prevent even wor worse disaster, you know, the, the lesser evil. And and that's why, look, the black people of this country rallied around Biden's candidacy to begin with. They, they weren't expecting great things. They were very fearful of, of what was about to happen. These people are very well aware of, of, of the problems that they're talking about. I mean, basically what they're saying is we got a very divided electorate. It's very closely divided. If we're going to win, we got to do everything right. 
And yeah, we might turn off this section of, of voters, but we're going to gain a few more votes this way. And the entire fate of democracy in the country, in the world, frankly, depends on us finessing this very clever, very tricky, very triangulated strategy to pull off a, a, a few more votes rather than a few less votes. I, I, you know, I, I look at this and, you know, everything they're saying is plausible. And I'm saying... This is a nutty strategy. I mean, I understand they're Democrats. They're about winning elections. But the fate of the entire world is hanging on this strategy that is so dicey. So much can go wrong and you cannot even be sure of your analysis and you know it. And you're telling us we got to put all of our eggs in one basket for these semi-promises you're giving us? I mean, if, if this is really an emergency, which it is, if, if the future of American democracy is really in the balance, which it is, if that impacts on the whole world, which it does, how the hell can you say we should trust everything to some cockamamie, highly risky strategy like this? Maybe people need to say electoral politics is not the way to guarantee our future people. I mean, I understand all the Democrats can do is win elections, not win elections. Well, what that indicates to me is that what we need to do is mobilize in other ways to defeat the reaction, to forestall the reaction, defend ourselves if, if by chance Republicans, Trump, do take uh, complete power again. If this is an emergency, act like it. Don't tell us this is an emergency and what we got to do is, is, is turn out the effort, you know, go all out for Conor Lambism. Well, we're going to have to end it there. Up next, our interview with Rohini Hensman about Ukrainian history and the war in Ukraine. We're recording this on March 20th. We're very pleased today to have on the podcast Rohini Hensman. She is an writer, independent scholar from India, and her most recent book is Indefensible, Democracy, Counter-Revolution, and the Rhetoric of Anti-Imperialism which tackles the pernicious legacy of Stalinist imperialism. And um, the reason we asked, we asked her to be on the podcast today was a couple reasons. One, we've recently been discussing this issue of what we've called knee-jerk anti-imperialism in the context of uh, the war in Ukraine and some of the problematic left uh, interpretations of that war. And uh, Rohini has a whole book on about these kind of problematic politics in the left. But she also just published recently a piece in The Wire. The Wire is an Indian online publication. And the piece is called Ukraine's Protracted Struggle for National Liberation. The piece is a very insightful discussion of Ukrainian history, its relationship with Russia over the years, and how that helps us to better understand the war in Ukraine today. If you caught last week's podcast, you know that we discussed the MHI editorial Ukraine Fights for National Self-Determination Against Russian Imperialism. I think you'll find a lot of the themes from that discussion will also uh, resonate with our discussion with uh, Rohini today. And so I thought it'd be good to have her on the podcast to talk about both the specifics about Ukraine, but also about anti-imperialism in the left as well. So um, Rohini, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good to be here. Yes, thank you very much for coming on uh, the show. It's uh, really an important topic, obviously, uh, that we're discussing today. It's the topic of the moment all throughout the world. Yeah. So you you start off your piece in The Wire. You say, um, quote, it is impossible to understand what is happening in Ukraine today without some knowledge of its past. And I'm sure we'll go into some more details um, as we talk today, but what are the main points or themes that you want your readers to come away with? You know, what are these lessons from Ukraine's past that you think are relevant today? Okay. Well, first, um, I wanted to say that contrary to Pu to Putin, Ukraine has a history as a state that actually predates the establishment of the Russian state, uh, which was at that time the Grand Principality of Moscow, which was a forerunner of the Tsarist Empire. Um, the second point is that the Crimean Tatars were the indigenous inhabitants of Crimea, and they were over 80% of the population when it was colonized by Catherine the Great in 1783. Um, and the third point, which I think is closest to my heart in some ways, that there was a clean break, in fact, a counter-revolution 
between Lenin's and Stalin's regimes. And here Putin has actually got it right when he says that although Stalin kept up the facade of being a Leninist, in practice he reversed all of Lenin's policies. I mean, I have many criticisms of Lenin and think that some of his policies actually opened the way for Stalin to come to power, uh, which I think he himself realized towards the end of his life. But the bottom line is that he was a socialist and Stalin was not. In a public discourse, it has become almost impossible to get this through because throughout the Cold War and ever since then, both anti-communists and Stalinists have agreed that Stalin was following in Lenin's footsteps. So just as Western imperialism debased and distorted the concept of democracy uh, by crushing democracy movements in the third world in the name of democracy, uh, in the same way, the Stalinists have debased and distorted the notion of socialism or communism by using it to describe a regime that crushed socialism and wiped out communists with the utmost brutality. As a sort of footnote, I should add that orthodox Trotskyists haven't helped much either uh, because they describe, they describe the Soviet Union as a degenerate worker state or something like that, which had to be defended against Western imperialism. Uh, when it was nothing of the sort, in my view, it was a state capitalist empire engaged in inter-imperialist rivalry with the West. So I, it seems sometimes Im almost impossible to get this through, but I guess we have to keep trying. Well, I mean, I, I, I agree with, with everything Roni said. And I just want to say this isn't the first time that, that people have said it. Raya uh, opens her book, Marxism and Freedom, by saying on both sides of the Iron Curtain, there is a veritable conspiracy to identify Marxism, which is a theory of liberation, with state capitalist, communist totalitarianism, which is a system of uh, exploitation and oppression. So, I mean, we, we, yeah, we, we have been saying this revolutionary socialists for a very long time, and there are immense forces against people hearing this. Yes. Yes, yes. No, I, I, I know that uh, Dunayaska did say that. And unfortunately, it's, it's very hard to get it through. You early in your piece in The Wire, you have this quote by Lenin, which I thought was really interesting. You quote Lenin saying that, quote, what Ireland was for England, Ukraine has become for Russia, exploited in the extreme and getting nothing in return. Thus, the interests of the world proletariat in general and the Russian proletariat in particular require that the Ukraine regains its state independence since only this will permit the development of the cultural level that the proletariat needs, end quote. This is interesting, I think, to us. Um, we've talked a lot about Marx's writings on Ireland in the context of the need to fight white nationalism. But what, what was Ukraine's relationship with Russia before the, Rev the Russian Revolution that, 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 that Lenin's trying to describe here? Um, well, of course, as he says, Ukraine was exploited economically by Russia, uh, but that was not the only form of oppression. Um, Ukraine was aggressively Russified, um, with the Ukrainian language and culture suppressed, and the same in Crimea, which became a sort of Russian settler colony, I suppose. Any aspirations for independence were punished severely. I mean, I came across this example of uh, Taras, Shevchenko, who is seen as, seen as the national poet of Ukraine. Uh, he was born a serf. Uh, he used Ukrainian as the language in which he wrote, and he was expressing a wish for the freedom of Ukraine. And he was punished repeatedly and died in his 40s as a result of the mistreatment he suffered. And interestingly, since now all this thing about nationalism in Ukrainian nationalism is coming up, he was not a nas narrow nationalist. He expressed sympathy for other oppressed peoples of the Russian Empire, including the Muslim peoples. So that, I think, was part of what Lenin was referring to, that to uh, permit the cultural level of the proletariat to develop, you needed that independence. Earlier uh, in the podcast, you said there was a real break between Lenin and Stalin and Ukraine's relationship with the Soviet Union. What was you know, how would you characterize the relationship between Ukraine and the USSR under Lenin and then later under Stalin? Uh, well, in 1920, I think Ukraine, along with Georgia, Belarus, 
Armenia and Azerbaijan uh, became an independent Soviet Socialist Republic that related to the Russian Soviet Socialist Republic on more or less equal terms. By 1922, Stalin uh, wanted to centralize power away this independent status. When Lenin came to know that Stalin's, one of Stalin's colleagues had actually hit uh, a Georgian communist who objected to this plan, Lenin was terribly upset. His writings in response to this incident make a distinction between the nationalism of the oppressor and the nationalism of the oppressed, which is of course very familiar to us, but at that time was not really taken for granted. And they refer to Stalin as, and this is a quote, a real and true nationalist socialist, close quote, who flings around the accusations of nationalist socialism against communists from oppressed nations. And he also calls Stalin a vulgar great Russian bully. Now, <laughs> I find that these denunciations seem to resonate today when the people of an oppressed country, that's Ukraine, are being accused of neo-Nazism. When, at least in my opinion, it's the great Russian bully who flings around such accusations, who is the real neo-Nazi. So Lenin was right to be worried about what Stalin would do, because after his death, uh, Stalin proceeded to reverse all his policies in the Russian colonies. In Ukraine, this actually resulted in genocide, according to Rafael Lemkin, who himself was a Holocaust survivor and coined the term genocide. Stalin slaughtered the entire intelligentsia, writers, teachers, poets, artists, and so on, church leaders and their lay followers, and then starved to death around 5 million peasants. Lemkin also refers to what was done to other peoples of the USSR, especially the Muslim peoples, including the Crimean Tatars, as genocide. The destruction of, I think, whole or part of an ethnic group in order to extinguish their existence as a separate people. Yeah, so that was the difference between Lenin's policies and Stalin's. I was going to, uh, just for the clarification for uh, our listeners, the term Great Russian is probably not known to everybody anymore. It was a very important part of Lenin's uh, polemics uh, at the time. Uh, and in your article, you give a contemporary analogy between, let's say, what's happening in the United States and what he would call Great Russian chauvinism. Can, can you go into that? Yes, well, it, from the context, I gather that what Lenin meant by Great Russian Chauvinism was very similar to what we mean by white supremacism, namely the belief that ethnic Russians are somehow superior to and therefore entitled to dominate all other ethnic communities. So it's a kind of assumption of supremacism. You mentioned a bit ago the distinction between nationalism of the oppressed nation and nationalism of the oppressor nation. To listeners who might not be familiar with that sort of distinction, how would you justify supporting one type of nationalism over the other? Well, I think it's, it's actually a bit confusing to call the desire for national liberation uh, nationalism, although very often it comes together with nationalism. I mean, for example, in India, you had a national movement, an independence movement. But it meant that the people of a whole country cutting across all ethnic groups were trying to become independent or liberated from an imperialist power. So that kind of nationalism, especially when it uh, was directed towards forming a democratic republic, Lenin supported that, even though, of course, he was an internationalist, as all socialists should be. Whereas the nationalism of the big nations or the oppressor nations obviously is by definition uh, oppressive because it seeks to dominate and subordinate the peoples of, of the oppressed nations. So in that sense, he tried to distinguish between these and said that we support where the Basically, it's support for national liberation movements or independence movements against imperialism. 
since we've got something of a, a Lenin scholar on, on the, the podcast, um, I'm dying to ask you, in his uh, February 21 justification for, for going to war, to go into at the time, Putin said that Lenin basically was just playing politics, was uh, trying to appease nationalists when he put forward this, you know, cockamamie slogan about the right of nations to self-determination. How would you respond to that? Well, actually, if you read the whole of that, which I think everyone should, everyone who claims to be a Marxist should, or be, to be on the left should read that whole article that Lenin wrote, you will find that his motivation is, it's not in any way a sort of, well, he's not trying to appease nationalists. Basically, he is, he wants to, to say that we have to be, uh, we have to be consistent in our opposition to imperialism. That if we say that we are against the imperialism of the Western capitalist countries, we have to be equally against our own imperialism. We can't say it's bad when they do it, but it's good when they do, we do it. So he is trying to be consistent. That's one thing. And the other thing is what I just said about uh, basically it, he was hugely disturbed by what he saw as this great Russian chauvinism. He said that there's no guarantee that these other nationalities which used to be colonized by Russia, will have any freedom unless we have this stipulation that they have the right to self-determination up to and including the right to secede. Otherwise, it's just like a, you know, what did he say, a piece of paper, which means nothing. I, I wouldn't call myself a Lenin scholar, but I have read that times over. And I mean, I, I think it's very heartfelt. It's not something that he said just for the sake of saying. Uh, so if we fast forward to the disintegration of the Soviet Union, most people maybe have a sense of, you know, what that meant for Ukraine. But uh, for those of us, you know, that, that aren't history buffs, what, what happened to Ukraine when the Soviet Union uh, collapsed? Yeah, I mean, at that point, all these um, republics, or many of them, were voting in um, what they called a referendum on whether or not they should be independent from the Soviet Union. And Ukrainians voted, this was in 1991, they voted for independence by a huge majority. 84% of the population participated, so that was a very high percentage. And more than 92% voted for independence from the Soviet Union. And what I think now uh, is most interesting uh, given all this, um, accus these accu accusations about Ukraine being anti-Russian and so on, is that when the votes are disaggregated by region, uh, it's notable that every region had a majority in favor. So it wasn't just the, you know, majority ethnic U Ukrainian regions, every region. Uh, the lowest majority was in Crimea. But in each of the majority Russian-speaking oblasts of Donetsk and Luhansk, that's what now has been taken over for eight years by the separatists and Russians, over 83% voted in favor of independence. So they were ethnic Russians, the majority of ethnic Russians in these, and in actually throughout that eastern and southeastern part of Ukraine, they were majority ethnic Russians, but they wanted to be uh, free of the Soviet Union. They didn't want to be linked to Russia. And I think we can trust the results of this referendum because Gorbachev, who was then in power, had respect for democratic principles. He was certainly not going to rig an election because he wanted actually to keep the union together, but in a more democratic form. And nor can this result be attributed to interference by U.S. imperialism, which would be the sort of knee-jerk reaction of some people, because the then U.S. president was George H.W. Bush. He was not in favor of Ukrainian independence. So I think this is the only uh, referendum that we really can trust about what Ukrainians wanted. I thought that was a fascinating part of your piece in The Wire. I wasn't aware of the demographics of that referendum. Or, or I wasn't 
aware of what the U.S.'s position on the on the on the independence was at that time. So that's fascinating. Right. The the context is also extremely interesting. You know, why was Bush one against Ukrainian independence? Ah, okay. Well, um, at that time, independence made Ukraine the world's third largest nuclear power. I think people were saying that it would have been larger than Britain and France put together and China put together. And although Bush trusted Gorbachev to enter into a responsible pact to, say, not use nuclear weapons, he didn't know who would come to power in Ukraine and didn't want the added complication of securing their nuclear weapons. So for him, it was a headache that here was a potential new nuclear power with an enormous number of nuclear weapons. So there was huge pressure on Ukraine to sign the NPT, that's the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, as a non-nuclear power, which to some extent the Ukrainians were willing to do, but they were worried about how their security would be guaranteed if they gave up their nuclear weapons, because right next to them was a huge nuclear power. In fact, some of their nuclear weapons went to Russia. So in 1994, what came to be called the Budapest Memorandum was signed by the Russian Federation, the US and the UK, providing so-called security assurances to Ukraine. Among other things, and this is really important, the signatories undertook to, quote, respect the independence and sovereignty and the existing borders of Ukraine, and to refrain from the threat or use of force against the territorial integrity or political independence of Ukraine, end of quote. So, of course, this agreement was torn up by Putin when he invaded Ukraine in 2014, which shouldn't surprise us. But what about the other co-signatories, the US and UK? Uh, their argument was that they had given security assurances and not security guarantees and were therefore not required to do anything to restore the territorial integrity and political independence of Ukraine, which sounds to me a very, um, yes, not a very convincing argument. Well, I've seen quite a few articles and conversations recently saying that this is just awful for the cause of nuclear non-proliferation, because if this is what happens to a country when they do give up their nuclear weapons, uh, that they can't be assured of their own security, then how are we going to convince countries in the future to give up nuclear weapons? Absolutely, yeah. Yes, in fact, the other nuclear powers, the, the recognized nuclear weapons powers haven't moved at all. The NPT requires them as well to move towards nuclear disarmament. That hasn't happened. They go on developing their nuclear weapons. So it's, yeah, it's a very bad precedent. So your article... Um, refers to Ukraine's relationship with the USSR as being a colonial one. And you also make this argument about why that's not often recognized. Do you want to go into that a little bit? Of course, obviously, in the Tsarist Empire, it was, it was a colony. But even yeah, after Stalin took over, it was again a colony. And I think in some ways, we are all to blame for this to some extent, because we refer to the Third World or Global South uh, namely uh, colonies or ex-colonies in, in uh, Asia, Africa, and, and uh, Latin America. But at the same time, we lump together the imperial power and its colonies as a Soviet Union. So no one would think that actually this single entity, the Soviet Union, includes both an imperial power and, uh, and a whole lot of colonies even though it overlaps completely with the old Tsarist empire. Uh, even anti-Stalinists who condemned Russia's interventions, say in Hungary, Czechoslovakia, Poland, uh, Afghanistan, didn't think much about the oppression of the colonies in the Soviet Union until after it disintegrated. And I, 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 I'm guilty of this as well. I mean, I, I never called for uh, the decolonization in the Soviet Union uh, until it became clear that these were all colonies because they wanted to be free after 1991. In your article, you compare Putin's stated rationale for his uh, 2015 invasion of Ukraine. Uh, you compare that to Hitler's pretext for invading Czechoslovakia. And you also compare the Munich Agreement 
uh, in which Britain and France tried to negotiate peace with Hitler. You compare that to the Minsk agreements that were signed by Russia, Ukraine, France, and Germany in 2014 and 2015. What exactly are you recalling? Uh, what warnings are you issuing you know, regarding history with this comparison? Hitler invaded the Sudetenland in Czechoslovakia in 1938 on the pretext that the majority of the population there was German-speaking. Just as Putin invaded Ukraine on the pretext that the majority of the population in Crimea and eastern Ukraine was Russian-speaking. Britain and France signed the Munich Agreement with Hitler, which more or less gave him a green light to go ahead and annex the Sudetenland. Of course, they did it in the hope that it would save them from having to go to war with him. But as we know, that didn't work. Uh, and so after that, the Munich Agreement has come to be seen as a byword for the futility of a policy of appeasement, as it's called vis-a-vis -vis an aggressive expansionist dictator. Now, it's true I have compared the Minsk agreements signed by Russia, Ukraine, France, and Germany after the 2014 invasion of Ukraine with the Munich agreement. That may be a bit unfair. It wasn't quite so bad. At least the victim of aggression was allowed to be part of the negotiations, which Czechoslovakia wasn't uh, in the Munich agreement. But that Ukraine had a metaphorically, metaphorical gun at their head because they were being, at the time, uh, invaded by Russia. And the agreement as interpreted by the Russian party was also an example of appeasement. Because if you look at it carefully and follow it through in the form that they wanted, it would have given Russia a permanent say in the Ukrainian government in government policies. It would have given those, those two regions, Donetsk and Luhansk, an ability to veto anything that the government proposed. In other words, it would have undermined Ukraine's independence and sovereignty. So that, I think, is a type of appeasement to allow them to do that. Now that so many Ukrainians, and also Russians for that matter, have paid with their lives for this appeasement, I feel that the current measures against Putin should not cease until Ukraine fully regains its independence and territorial integrity. Namely that until the Ukrainians themselves decide without any pressure on them from all these uh, other parties, the Western parties, etc., etc., what they want their country to be and to do. Yeah, I think that's what I would say is the warning that they shouldn't be forced in some way to concede to Russian demands. I certainly agree with that. And I mean, a lot of people are calling for peace through making Ukraine neutral, through partitioning it. This is appeasement. And as you say, World War II showed how well that works. And the last eight or so years in, in, uh, in Ukraine have showed how well the, the appeasement has been working there, which is not at all. Hey, we're going to return to this conversation in just a moment. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a few minutes to hear from Anja Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing in all-out authoritarianism extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current 
current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marxist philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world. We intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us. So we hear a lot of theories about why Putin is invading Ukraine from geopolitical concerns to issues with just his own personality or lack of um, intelligence uh, about geopolitical reality. Can you shed any light onto this question? Well, I think the best person to answer that question is Putin himself. Yeah. Uh, well, we, we, we tried to get him on the podcast, but it was hard to get a hold of him. <laughs> no, but he has already given us his answer. In his long expositions on Russian history, uh, he claims that Ukraine is not a country, it's part of Russia, so presumably he has the right to claim it back. So that's his first argument. Then in his press conference with Emmanuel Macron, he gave a more pithy answer when he quoted from uh, what uh, we later find out was a 1980s punk rock song, a Russian punk rock song, Sleeping Beauty in a Coffin, which basically says, I crept up crept up on her and raped her. Sorry, I don't want to use bad language. Like it or not, you have to put up with it, my beauty. Which I mean to take that if Ukrainians resist being raped, he will kill them and rape them anyway. Uh, and he has already given us a demonstration of what that means in Chechnya. Bomb the country into rubble, slaughter civilians to terrorize them, kill the leaders of the independence movement, and install his own brutal dictator as a puppet, which in the case of Chechnya is Ramzan Kadyrov, who was apparently recently seen in Ukraine too. So his sort of pet Rottweiler. Socialists in Ukraine and other East European countries have explained that the reason they didn't object, that's people, uh, for example, in uh, Estonia, one of those countries, one of the, the Baltic states, explained that the reason they didn't object to their countries joining NATO was because they wanted to avoid such a fate. And who can blame them? Who wants to be like Chechnya? I have to say that at this point, that as a woman, I find it shocking to see so many commentators sympathizing with the security concerns, so-called, of the self-professed rapist, to use Putin's obscene metaphor, and having so little sympathy with the victim and potential victims. And it, it also denies their, their agency to say that it was NATO that wanted to expand into their countries without seeing that they themselves might have wanted some guarantee that they would not be invaded and reabsorbed into the Russian Empire. Yep, you've hit the nail on the head. That's exactly the, the, the issue with the people who keep screaming about NATO, NATO, and the U.S. and their expansion and, and so forth. The Putin regime has invaded, yep. right? <laughs> yes. and, NATO and, hasn't and dropped any bombs on the Ukrainians. No. NATO hasn't dropped any bombs. And if you're sitting there in, in Ukraine and you've given up your nukes and, you know, you've got this threatening neighbor, you're going to turn for help however you can. We, we, we shouldn't be criticizing that. Lenin, 
received help from the German government. <laughs> it's true. You know, he, he got he got a train ride to get back to to, to Russia to uh, <laughs> yes. help encourage the the revolution. Well, according to these people, he should have refused. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to get a train ride from an imperialist government because no, uh, exactly. Uh, Rohini, your the subtitle of your piece in the Wire says to understand the situation in Ukraine today, it's important to understand Ukraine's history, Russia's ambitions, and the role of the West in facilitating Putin's expansionist quest for power. And if you were reading that quickly, you might say, oh, the role of the West, she's probably going to talk about how NATO, you know, pushed Putin over the edge or something. But when you say the role of the U.S. in facilitating Putin's expansionist quest for power, what are you referring to? Oh, yes, something quite different. What I meant was that the West should have been well aware of what Putin was capable of by just looking at what he has done. And yet they still treated him as a partner in so many ways. Uh, I gave three examples in my article, but there are many more. One was the way that the EU allowed the Nord Stream 2 pipeline to go ahead even after Putin had attacked Ukraine in 2014. And by then, it was surely abundantly clear that the whole purpose of the pipeline was to bypass Ukraine so as to starve Ukraine into submission. But they went ahead and only at the very last minute did they stop. Then the Obama administration, at a time when Putin was bombing schools, hospitals, residential neighborhoods, mosques, markets in Syria, everything he's doing now in Ukraine and more, Obama signed a ceasefire deal with him, treating what was I see as a terrorist, as a partner in the war on terror. So basically business as usual. And the third example is the Brexit campaign, which is really funny because uh, Johnson now has come out as pretending to be a champion of the fight against Putin. But his campaign uh, for Brexit certainly received significant social media support from Russia and almost certainly money as well. Brexit was very much part of Putin's goal of getting the UK out of the EU in order to weaken it. So they didn't seem to mind having this cozy relationship, the, the Brexit campaigners, uh, with the oligarchs and, uh, and the social media so associated with Putin. So I totally sympathize with Syrians who are now saying, we told you so, but you didn't listen. It was very clear what kind of future one could envisage for Ukraine if Putin was not stopped if you just look at what he was doing in Syria, but somehow that didn't click. Yeah, there are a lot of great points in your piece in The Wire. This one was a particularly great one, I thought, because it takes this whole narrative that we hear from the pseudo anti-imperialist left about how this is all the West's fault or all NATO and the US's fault, and kind of turns it on its head and says, well, there are ways that the US and NATO facilitated Putin's uh, aggression in Ukraine, but it's not the way that they mean that. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about the pseudo anti-imperialist left. It's a topic you wrote a whole book about, and we hear this refrain a lot, this sort of analysis of the world in which it seems like the only actor that can make anything happen, the, the only actor that has any causal force in the world is the United States and its allies, and everyone else is just sort of reacting to the U.S. Where does this idea come from? Yeah, I mean, um, I wrote Indefensible, uh, that last book of mine, um, because I was so distraught at what was happening in Syria. Not only what was happening, but the failure of the left to have any large-scale demonstrations against it. The way we had when, for example, Iraq was invaded by the US or Gaza was bombed by Israel. Nothing like that in the case of Syria, which was suffering so terribly. Uh, so in trying to explain this, why this was so, I found that there was a pattern whereby a section of the left protests only against Western imperialism and its allies, but not against non-Western imperialism, imperialisms and their allies, no matter how brutal and counter-revolutionary they are, as Bashar al-Assad obviously is. That's why I called it pseudo-anti-imperialism, because it wasn't against imperialism as such, only against some imperialism. 
and it was basically covering up or making apologies for other imperialists and their allies. Why? And I went into this and I, I think it starts off in the Stalinist left uh, because, of course, that was their stance. Russia is anti-imperialist. The West is imperialist. If you want to support anti-imperialism, you have to support Russia. You don't look at what Russia is doing in terms of imperialism because it doesn't apply. Um, but by now, I'm afraid it's spread very far. I mean, we see this attitude very much in India, for example, where the Stalinist left is extremely strong. But it's not just Stalinists. I'm afraid it has spread far beyond them. I think it has completely undermined the whole notion of internationalism. We see, it's funny, we see Russian socialists pleading for uh, the left, uh, especially in the West, to become more internationalist, saying it would help us because they're fighting against the Russian state. And they get no help at all from these people who make apologies for Russian imperialism. So I think it is a major problem and something that is completely contrary to any notion of socialist internationalism. I, I, com I completely agree with, with what you're saying. And I'd like to read out a very famous statement by Noam Chomsky, which shows the lack of internationalism and the nationalism of, of his thinking. But also, because you have referred to a, a, apologetics, uh, a lot of people who are, you know, really sympathetic to Chomsky say, oh, he's not an apologist, you know, uh, he doesn't say anything positive about the Putin regime, he doesn't say anything positive about Khmer Rouge and, and Assad and so forth, you know, he just focuses on the, the main enemy. So I'd like you to respond to that. Here's, here's what he said, and it's known as the famous Chomsky rule. He says, my own concern is primarily the terror and violence carried out by my own state for two reasons. For one thing, because it happens to be the larger component of international violence, but also for a much more important reason than that. Namely, we can do something about it. So, yeah, I, I'd like your, um, your response to that doctrine in terms of internationalism, but also how, how would you uh, respond to people who say he's not an apologist? He just focuses on the terror and violence carried out by my own state. Yeah, for one thing, it's not internationalist to focus only on what your own country does. Because we are in an interconnected world and uh, what, other, what happens in other countries uh, affects your country. But secondly, uh, also surely internationalists should be express solidarity with oppressed people wherever they are and not just if they're oppressed by your own, uh, your own country. Um, I mean, recently, actually this, this thing has come up in, Two people have brought this up. One, and this is important because these people are uh, admirers of Chomsky, not just admirers, admirers, but both of them have translated Chomsky's works into their own language. One was a Ukrainian socialist who has translated Chomsky. And he wrote to him protesting about one of Chomsky's earlier uh, articles, which basically called the uprising of 2014, the democracy uprising, uh, something like a US-inspired coup. Now, I think this goes beyond apologetics. It's actually uh, denying agency to non-Western peoples which is at best Orientalism, perhaps even racism, because it says you people are basically your morons, you're easily manipulated, you can't decide for yourselves, and you are not capable of carrying out any kind of revolution because you will be manipulated by Western imperialism. So he was protesting against this kind of, uh, well, this kind of attitude. And then a much, an even stronger and longer 
uh, attacked by Yasin al-Sar Saleh, uh, the Syrian, Syrian, uh, he is a Marxist and has been a former uh, political prisoner in which he takes apart, this is really well worth reading, he takes apart Chomsky's attitude um, to what was happening in Syria and it actually reflects very deep, a deep sense of hurt. I mean, again, uh, Yasin al-Hazali has translated Chomsky into Arabic. And it, it expresses how much, how hurtful it is to find someone whom one has admired in the past taking positions that again treat Syrians, don't treat Syrians at all who don't, someone who doesn't quote Syrians on their own struggle, who goes to, diff, you know, sort of Western so-called experts uh, to pronounce on what's going on in Syria. I mean, okay, fine, uh, I don't read Arabic either, but there's enough that's translated from Arabic. There are enough uh, Syrians writing in English whom we can go to which is what I did before I wrote my book. So it's, I do think that it's quite um, given that someone like Chomsky is so influential on the left. I feel it is really doing a disservice to socialist internationalism to make these kinds of pronouncements, to have these kinds of attitudes to former, uh, former or currently uh, colonized peoples. It's not a good look at all. I'd, I'd like to uh, get, uh, if possible, direct response to a very frequent claim I've heard that Chomsky is not an apologist because he doesn't say good things, you know, about uh, the Khmer Rouge. He doesn't say good things about Assad and Putin and so forth. The idea is he clears himself of any charge of being an apologist by not being like a, a Grover Fur type, but uh, saying, you know, Stalin was the greatest thing since sliced bread, right? He refrains from making any criticism the focus of what he's doing. How would you respond to that with reference to the issue of whether that's apologetics or not? Um, obviously, yes, I agree. He doesn't directly support in any way these brutal dictators or imperialists. He has now, belatedly, he has condemned the Russian invasion of Ukraine, etc. Uh, but the, the, the point is that the way he treats the people who are being oppressed shows that, I don't know, that he doesn't take them seriously. And that includes, for example, the I would say that his support for, for the narrative about the 2014 uprising in Ukraine being a coup is an apology, in a way. It's apolog an apology for what happens afterwards. Then there's this long uh, argument about chemical weapons being used in Syria, where he has, in various ways, he hasn't maybe 100% denied that Assad used chemical weapons against his own people, which of course would be an enormous crime against humanity and would immediately put him beyond the pale. But he has questioned, he has questioned Syrians who claim this, Syrians who saw their own children dying in front of them. I mean, it's, I find it really cruel doing that. And as socialists, that basic humanity, I think we should have that we identify with and feel sympathy for people who are suffering. I mean, you don't have to be, we can have allies among people who are, have that basic humanism, even if they're not Marxists, even if they don't call themselves socialists. But I feel that there is some divide on the left between people who don't have that basic sympathy, that basic, you, you know, you see things that really tear you apart and then you try to somehow paper over it. That 
really troubles me. Well, Rohini Hensman, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. This has been a fantastic yes. discussion. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. That's been it's been it's been great talking to you. Yeah. And so nice to talk to people who share <laughs> share my assumptions. <laughs> Hey, that's all the time we have for this episode of Radio Free Humanity. If you like the podcast, please do stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org to listen to other episodes and to read more about these issues and others. As always, if you like the podcast, we encourage you to write to us, to comment and rate the podcast, and of course, to share with all your friends and enemies. 